0: Well, good morning. Um, glad to be here for RUF Sunday. And uh, I think the first time I ever preached at Christ Prez was a little over two years ago, and I introduced myself as uh, an Alabama fan, Alabama grad. And I'm happy to report, if you're wondering how RUF is doing, uh, last week when, we, when Ole Miss played LSU, it was the first time I ever yelled at the TV to cheer for Ole Miss. So they are, uh, our, your students are indoctrinating me well, as, as is the community. But, um, no, I'm really thankful for the way that Christ Pres loves UF, loves college students. And our staff is here today as well, Kaylee, Caroline, Aiden. And uh, students, there is pizza after church as well uh, for students or parents of students to, to eat. You're just so gracious, gracious in providing for us as a ministry. Uh, before I dive into this text, I just want to build the context a little bit so that we kind of understand this passage before we dive in. So today we find ourselves in the last eight verses of the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. And this letter to the Galatians is really just kind of a long-form argument that Paul is trying to make to this church that he planted, that he loves, about uh, reminding them about the faithfulness and uh, reminding them to be faithful to the gospel, to live into God's free grace. Because there are some false teachers that have infiltrated the church, and along with their false teaching, they've brought this idea that adherence to the Jewish law, as well as faith in Jesus, was the way you earned salvation, uh, for lack of better terms. And so, Paul is just pleading with them Return to God's free grace, return to God's free grace, and that will change your experience of how life is. And he ends with this. So Galatians 6:11 through 18, Paul says, "'See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. It is those who want to make a good showing in the flesh who would force you to be circumcised, and only in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For even those who are circumcised do not themselves keep the law, but they desire to have you circumcised that they may boast in your flesh.'" But far be it for me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks be to God. So there's been a lot of talk, especially around campus, uh, because we're, a, a lot of campus is online, especially on social media, about the algorithm and how smart the algorithm has gotten lately. And when I say the algorithm, all I mean is this kind of artificially intelligent computer program that kind of learns who you are and then gives you more, at least on social media, of what you want to see. I don't know if this is uh, what this says about me, but for some reason, if whenever I get on Instagram, I have like, all these extreme sports or people jumping off you know, 60 uh, feet, 100 feet ledges into water. I have no idea what that means about me. Maybe I uh, only take my risks in life online. But yeah, the algorithm loves to learn about what who you are so that they can hook you, so that they can get you more and more to look at your screens. And I find it interesting that this algorithm... Um, At the same time we talk about this algorithm, there's also a lot of research being done that the more time you spend on social media is directly correlated to your level of unhappiness. And while knowing this, because this is kind of common knowledge these days, while knowing this, we still get sucked in. We still look at our phones constantly. And that's the brilliance of these software engineers, isn't it? They know that to be human is to easily have your will subverted to choose what is worse for you long-term and what is easier for you in the moment. I think Paul's worry to the church in Galatia is the same. That these false teachers know exactly the nature of humanity and they come in with the law promising instant gratification, instant satisfaction, some uh, a boost of self-confidence when you earn your salvation by adhering to the Jewish law, by following the rites of circumcision. And they're trading their long-term joy. They're trading their long-term peace that God has given them access to by his grace. And so this passage today, Paul is calling their bluff. And perhaps he's calling the authorities around us their bluff, as well as our own tendency to trust in instant gratification. And religions of the law, instead of living into and being free in God's free grace. So we're going to look at this passage in three points. First, subversive motives, then freedom and kingdom. So first one, subversive motives. So there are a number of different ways that Paul tries to convince the church in Galatia that God's free grace is the way to life. Primarily, throughout the whole book, he makes a biblical rational argument, looking at from the Old Testament to the New, that God's grace was the way in which he had chosen since the fall to relate to humanity for all of history. This was God's plan A. It was never through the law that we were able to be righteous. But at the end of the passage, this ver- these verses that I look to are that we're looking at today, I find it interesting that he kind of puts his Bible down. And he appeals not to Scripture as far as why they should follow his argument of God's free grace being better. He talks about their experience. He's appealing to the experiential reality of what it looks like to live into God's free grace. That these people by the law have a totally different experience of life than someone who trusts in God's grace. Look at verse 12 and 13 for a moment. Paul gives three kind of underlying subversive motives that these legalistic teachers have in trying to get this church to live into the law, uh, showing that their experience is not one of freedom, their experience is one of slavery. He says, First, they want to make a good showing of the flesh. In other words, these teachers are teaching this passage, or the, these, these ways, this law, because they're insecure. They want to look better. This is what insecure people do. They demand that the world around them starts to live like them. Even if they themselves don't feel free, they feel more free. They feel more secure in their own lifestyle if they can just force everybody else to be like them. That's what Paul's saying. Second, at the end of verse 12, he says that they're also teaching the law in order that they may not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. So Paul's saying look, they're not only insecure in who they are and their identity, but they're also fearful. They're afraid of persecution. Now, why would the cross bring persecution? Well, the cross says that Jesus fulfilled the law, that Jesus is the fulfillment of the temple. And so all of these Christians in the first century world were kind of walking around free from the burdens of having to live up to the expectations of the law, not bowing to the demands of the high priest. Christians were a threat to the way the world worked. The world could oppress by fear, saying, look, you have to to live this way in order to be approved of, in order to be loved. And Christians were free from that burden. And so they were persecuted. But the teachers of the law, they didn't like being, they were fearful. They didn't like being persecuted. So, all right, we'll follow the law a little bit, but we'll also kind of have our cake and eat it too. We'll, We'll trust Jesus as well. We'll live this easy, comfortable life as well as calling ourselves a Christian. Number three, last subversive motive. It says at the end of verse 13, they desire to have you circumcised so that they may boast in your flesh. In other words, they really need you to affirm them. They need you to follow their law. They need you to follow their rules because your approval, your affirmation, you being converted to their way of life gives them a sense of self-worth. They get to brag about how they've gotten all these followers. They've gotten all this uh, crowd around them to follow their ways. Now, what's the warning for us here? These people who are experientially insecure and fearful, not living into the grace of God, but really uh, with no assurance, and so they have to manipulate others around them. The warning here is that we have to be careful of who we are listening to. We have to be careful of who we are listening to. We have to understand, like I said, these software engineers know more about humanity often than we know about ourselves. Our wills our desires, our hearts are easily subverted by authorities outside of us telling us how to live. That is what it means to be human. It, what it means to be human is to follow an authority outside of yourself, to trust in something or someone to, to direct you towards peace, life, hope, and joy. And what Paul is so concerned about these Galatians is you're listening to the wrong authority. This isn't going to lead you where you want to go. And this has always been the problem of sin, has it not? If you looked at the garden, it wasn't through physical force that Satan you know, got sin into the world, got Adam and Eve to sin. It was through words. He questioned their authority. They listened to the wrong voice, and thus the fall happened. And so Paul is simply saying, what voice are you listening to? And what are the motives behind that voice? Do these people, do these voices actually have your good in mind? This kind of turns the way that we think about sin on its head, right? We often think about sin as a doing problem. If we could just stop, stop doing these toxic habits, if we could stop doing these things that are obviously, if we open God's word, contrary to God's law, then maybe we would have it right. Maybe we would be righteous. But what the Bible says is, look, your doing is birthed out of a listening, if you think about the office, it's obligatory for an uh, RUF sermon to have the office reference. But if you think about the office, when Michael Scott drove into the lake, it wasn't his doing, it wasn't his, him driving into the lake that was the problem, was it? It was him listening to the GPS instead of listening to Dwight. It was a listening problem. It wasn't a doing problem. That's what the Bible says about sin that we need to be careful of what authority we are listening to and much less focused on our actions. Our actions are only indicators of who we are listening to. And so that's the question. Who is shaping your view of the good life? Who is telling us that we must curate our image to look perfect on the outside so that people think we're happy and perhaps we'll experience inner joy as a result? Students, who is telling you that college is the best four years of your life? Why are you buying into that narrative? Who are you trusting with that? Who told you that you were created for a romantic relationship or a perfect marriage or to have uh, amazing kids? Who told you that joy was found there? Is that voice really worth listening to? Or might there be some ulterior motives in someone getting you to believe that voice? This is what Paul is trying to argue. Next, he starts to argue why you should listen to his voice. This is the second point, subversive freedom. So in this passage, Paul uses this word boast twice. And before we look at the verses about what are about what Paul's boasting of as opposed to what these false teachers are boasting of, we first have to know what to boast means. To boast means to glory. In other words, to boast means to find your self worth, to find your identity. What we boast of is where we feel security. It's what we go to. It's what we run to when all the other things of life have let us down. It's what keeps us going. And in verse 13, he tells us what these teachers of the law boast of. we already read it. They're boasting in your flesh. In other words, because of these false teachers' experiential insecurity, they are deriving their own sense of glory, their own sense of self-worth by manipulating these Galatians to say, look, I've got a following. I'm somebody. I'm something. I drew a crowd. Conversely, verse 14, Paul says he has no such intentions with the Galatians because his boast is founded in something entirely different. Says his boast is the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. His boast is not in the approval of the the Galatians. His boast is not in how he's able to draw a crowd. His boast is not in his material or ministry success. What drives him is the cross, that his self-worth is not dependent on other people, but on who Jesus has says he is as where the boast of the, the, the false teachers is entirely dependent on the Galatians. Now, why does this matter? Why does this make Paul more trustworthy because of who experientially he has become in Jesus? A few years back, I saw there was a, a local car dealership that was advertising, and one of their advertisements was that our salespeople are not paid on commission. The reason that was important is because if you're paid on commission, I'm not saying this for everybody, but likely uh, or commonly people that are paid on commission are motivated by their own good, even as they're like maybe telling you what is good for you. Like, do I really need that Ford expedition that costs 40,000 more than my budget? I don't know. But the person that's paid on commission is really going to try to sell it. As where if you're not paid on commission, you can kind of trust that person because whether or not you buy the car, they're getting paid the same. They really should have your good in mind. And this is what Paul is saying. He says, look, I'm not working on commission. What I have found in the gospel, what is available to you in the gospel, you can trust because look, I don't need you to trust it or not. This makes me more reliable. What Paul has found in the gospel is what I would call a subversive freedom. It's a freedom that undermines this false freedom that these false teachers were perpetuating. It's a freedom where he can live life not captivated by insecurity, not captivated by the opinions of others around him. His boast is simply found in who Jesus has made him on the cross. Now, when I read that initially, that Paul's boast was found in the cross, it didn't initially sound like good news to me. I don't know, like nothing about the cross seems like it would lead to freedom, does it? The cross is the summation of all our biggest fears coming true. It's being hung out to dry in front of the world, displayed, exposed, naked, humiliated, judged, condemned, helpless, alone, vulnerable. So what is good news about his boast being in the cross? It's whose cross it was that allows him to boast. He says that it was, it's the cross of Jesus, not his own cross, where he finds his boast. That Jesus has submitted himself, subjected himself to Paul's biggest fears. This was the whole thing for the, the, the false teachers. They were afraid of their biggest fears becoming true. They were afraid that they were going to be humiliated, left alone. They were going to be afraid that they weren't admired. They were afraid that they were going to be judged. And so they had to manipulate everyone around them to kind of get more self-worth, get more satisfaction, get a boast. What Paul has is that Jesus has taken on all of those greatest fears on the cross, his condemnation, his judgment, his loneliness, his vulnerability, his insecurity, and he has placed it upon himself. And so all Paul can receive is acceptance, is communion, is righteousness. Verse 15, he says that understanding this leads to being a new creation. This is the whole message of the book of Colossians that you have been set free in Christ, now embrace that freedom. You don't have to operate like these false teachers under the gospel that they're preaching. You don't have to live life captive to your insecurities, trying to seek and find your identity in anything and everything that you feel like can give you something to boast about. Instead, you can live freely. Now, what does Paul say that living freely looks like? This is my last point. Subversive kingdom. So Protestant reformer Martin Luther, he once said this, I'll read this quote because I think it helps drive home what Paul is saying at the end of this text. He says that a Christian is an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is also an utterly dutiful man, subject to all, servant of all. So a Christian is a free man, Lord of all, subject to none. A Christian is a dutiful man, servant of all, subject to all. These two sentences on the surface sound antithetical. They sound like a paradox. So how do, they, how do we make sense of this? How does Paul make sense of this? So if you look in verse 15, he says this. He says, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything. In other words, the experiential reality for what Paul says is a result of the gospel is that you literally can operate life where your value, your worth, your identity, your standing with God is not judged on what you have or haven't done. You have permission to not listen to the voices that say, life is found here, life is found in you conforming to that, life is found in you doing this. Which means, like, students or kids, you don't have to take on the crushing burden of your peers or your parents saying that your identity is found in your ac- academic or athletic perfection or your social abilities. Congregation, you don't have to listen to the lie, that inner critic, the, the lie that the devil loves to feed us, that your acceptance to God, your ability to um, be approved of in the church is based on your religious devotion, the strength of your faith. You don't have to believe in Oxford that your value is equated with your beauty with your job title, with your net worth, with your resume. The kingdom of God is a people that are subversive because its members are people who are committed to listening to one voice, one authority. And it's the voice who says definitively and eternally that this is my beloved child in whom I am well pleased. There's freedom found there. Paul's saying, look, that's what I have found. That's what I'm offering to you. Do you want it? But at the same time, Luther says as well that a Christian, while an utterly free man, Lord of all, subject to none, is also an utterly dutiful man, servant of all, subject to none, or subject to all, sorry. How do we make sense of this? Well, if you look at verse 17, Paul introduces us to this reality. He says, from now on, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. Well, Paul has been saying this whole time, this whole passage, is that he is free from the judgments, from the ridicule, from the, the approval seeking of anyone outside of him. He's free in Christ to have confidence that transcends their judgments. Now, what does he do with all of the security? It's surprising. He doesn't use his security to like look down on others, he doesn't use his security to navigate life and pursue what he wants, his own pleasures. He uses the security that he finds in the gospel to suffer to suffer. He says, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. And he's not talking about physical or figurative scars. He's talking about literal scars. If you read his testimony, 2 Corinthians 11, Paul has endured real scars on behalf of trying to pursue people in love with the gospel. The scars are living evidence that Paul is the freest person in the world, as Eugene Peterson says, the, the freest person in the world is the person who is able to embrace death. They're tangible examples that he's not captive to insecurity. He's not captive to this wor- what this world thinks of him because he is able to give himself away. The freest person in the world was the one who took the cross, Jesus. And Paul is saying, look, to be a Christian is to live into that reality, to give yourself away. So perhaps what freedom actually looks like in our lives, maybe for parents, it's that we don't have to parent for our kids' approval to be liked by them or parent out of fear that our kids will be rebellious and everybody else won't approve of us. They'll think we're bad parents. Perhaps we can simply love, care, discipline, provide for our kids in a way that's sacrificial, in a way that has their good in mind. Perhaps we can go to class, we can go to work without... This idea that our identity is on the line, and instead we can love those who are in class with us. We can steward the gifts that we have at work to care for those around us, to care for those whom our job is impacting. Perhaps we can host people in our homes. This one's convicting for me. Perhaps we can host people in our homes without the burden of trying to look like we have it all clean, look like we have it all together, like we're great hosts. What did they think about us when we left? Perhaps we're free just to simply be curious. Care for them, be a comforting balm of the gospel as they walk into our homes. This is the freedom, this experiential freedom that Paul has a little bit of a taste of in Jesus, and he's trying to offer to the Galatians. It's the 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 freedom that we will once have eternally when Christ redeems all things. I'll end with this. So there's a powerful scene at the end of the TV series Breaking Bad, where the main character Walter White, um, this science teacher turned drug lord is finally kind of coming to an end to himself. It's the last episode. And we see the results of what all of his insecurities and kind of ego-seeking did to him. He's just wasted away. He's a shell of a person. We see what it did to those around him as he walks into the kitchen and he gives his wife uh, a piece of paper that says, hopefully this will get you immunity from all the stuff that's about to happen. And he looks at his wife, Skylar, and he says, Skylar, all the things that I did, I need you to understand And she cuts him off before he can even say anything more. And he says, if I have to hear one more time that you did all this for the family. And then he cuts her off. And to her surprise, he looks at her and he says, I did it for me. I liked it. I was good at it. I was alive. The mask finally came off. What was the end result of this life of insecurity him trying to gain an audience, him trying to gain a reputation, him trying to gain a net worth. It was the destruction of his own soul and his family. This is what the end of the false gospel of legalism is. And this is what Paul is trying to expose. But the end of the real gospel, the end of the gospel of Jesus Christ, this gospel of grace, is him, him looking at you, him walking up to you in spirit and saying, I took on flesh I embraced the reality of living in your broken world so I could understand you, so I could take on your burdens. I lived a sinless life so that you wouldn't have to. I died a sinner's death. And on the cross, what does Jesus say to to us? He says, I did this for you. I did this for you. This is the voice of self-sacrifice. This is the voice of grace. Whose gospel is worth following more than this? And so that's the invitation of the text. Who are you listening to? Are you listening to voices that are demanding and yet not giving any return? Or are you listening to the gracious voice of Jesus saying to the Father, it is finished. In you, I am well pleased. There's freedom found in listening to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that um, for all eternity, you have lived in the security of yourself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in love And you operate out of nothing else than that abundant love that you have within yourself. And we see this most expressed in the gospel, your self-sacrifice in Jesus for us. And so as we consider what it's like to have grace, help us experience grace more and more in this world by your spirit, help us believe this, help us be a people who lives into this freedom, this radical freedom that we are offered in the gospel. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.